Hello and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Vicki Mazzone. This program takes a look at politics and all that we experience in life. On today's show, contributor Rochelle Schmid returns with another candid conversation about toxic masculinity. ML Laurie takes a look at how responsibility to ourselves first is vital to happiness. But first, Kristen Thiel presents a very special edition of the She-Ra Solution. The She-Ra Solution is our longest running segment on the politics of living, and it is a monthly biography of women past and present. In this month's edition, Kristen interviews author and historian Quincy D. Newell on her latest book entitled Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th century black Mormon. Kristen will present a short intro to the interview, and then we'll hear the first part of the interview. The second part of this interview will air on the July episode of The Politics of Living. Here's Kristen Thiel. Hello. Today on The Shira Solution, I'm presenting an interview I did recently with historian and professor and my friend, Quincy D. Newell. In this first ever She-Ra Solution interview, we'll be discussing the subject of Quincy's latest book, Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th century Black Mormon, published in May by Oxford University Press. Quincy also shared a bit about her experience as a scholar. In doing so, we talked about two fascinating women with vastly different life experiences, yet connected now through one's research into the other's life. Jane was born in the early 1820s in Connecticut. Slavery still very much existed in the United States, but Jane was born free. She lived a full and long life. Before she died in her 80s, she experienced being a daughter and sibling in a close-knit family, being married and divorced, more than once, having children, eight of them, having careers, mostly as a domestic servant, moving across the country from Connecticut to Illinois to Utah, sometimes traveling by foot, and being a well-known member of the then both blossoming and controversial Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon faith. She even had close relationships with Joseph Smith the church's founder, and Brigham Young, the church's second leader, after Smith. Quincy, I'd like to start talking about Jane in your book on her life by learning why you thought Jane's story was important enough to tell. You wrote, Jane's story is important because it troubles the waters in our grand narratives. I love that line. Uh, Please tell us more about that. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Jane is such an interesting person. I got captured by her story when I was doing the research for a different book about 19th century African-American and Native American Mormons. And she just kept popping up. Um, I started to refer to her as the Forrest Gump of 19th century Mormonism because she knew all of the important people and she sort of showed up in the background in all these important events in the course of the 19th century. Um, 
I think she's really a, a fascinating figure from the 19th century, but she's not very well known. And I think that's largely because her story sort of moves in the opposite direction of what we want to tell about the 19th century. We want to see the 19th century as kind of a trajectory from slavery to freedom, a, a, a sort of narrative of progress. And Jane's story doesn't really work in that way. She seems to choose um, options in her life that make her in some ways more oppressed. She joins a church that keeps her in a kind of second-class status uh, instead of saying like Harriet Tubman, for example, who was one of her contemporaries, she's not working against slavery. She's not working for women's rights. Um, she is choosing to be a member of a church that is dominated by white men and that sort of reinstitutes patriarchy in a pretty serious way. Um, so in that sense, I think Jane moves against the grain of our general um, sort of grand narrative of American history for the 19th century. Um, and that's a really important thing to keep in mind, that there were people who weren't following that, that sort of trajectory. Um, she, was, she was doing something different, and that gives us a broader and deeper sense of the diversity of American history. So that's why I think she's important. I'd like to hear about your choice to refer to Jane throughout the book by her first name. And related, um, later in the book, you talk about how she's often called aunt by people of the church and by the greater community. What does that term mean in the case of Jane? Sure. Um, so Jane was born as Jane Elizabeth Manning, um, and then when she got married the first time uh, in Illinois, she took the surname of her husband, uh, Isaac James, so she became Jane Manning James. Um, later in the 1870s, she had a brief marriage to a man named Frank Perkins, so she became Jane Perkins, um, and then when that marriage dissolved, she became Jane James again. Um, so partly, I refer to her as Jane because that's the name that she held throughout her life. Um, she used the, the name Jane from birth to death, um, but her surname changed several times over the course of her lifetime. And so it becomes pretty confusing for readers to try and keep track of which Jane are we talking about. and um, when I am quoting evidence from Jane when she is Jane James, but she's talking about when she was Jane Manning, um, all of that becomes really complicated. Um, this was a choice that was not an easy one in a lot of ways. Um, surnames are a really important marker for, particularly for African Americans in the 19th century, they become a marker of self-ownership, they become a marker of freedom. Um, that uh, you're not just Jane, you are Jane Manning, you are Jane James. Um, so, so leaving off her last name um, in some ways felt like the wrong thing to do. It felt like a disrespectful choice. But in other ways, that surname was always the surname um, of a man in her life, whether it was her father or a husband. It was a way to mark her as belonging to a man. Um, and so in that way, I think using her first name, the one that she held on to all the way through her life, was a way of kind of respecting her own independent personhood. 
Um, and so that's why I decided to call her Jane all the way through the book. Um, her community often referred to her as Aunt Jane, particularly later in her life. This is in Utah. Um, and in some ways, that's a marker of respect as well. Um, they referred to other white women uh, in the community as aunt as well. Excuse me. Um, but the trouble is that for, for Jane, calling her, for a white person to call her Aunt Jane um, was a way of both sort of tying her to the community, but also keeping her subservient. It was it was a form of address that was uh, pretty common in the American South during slavery to refer to house servants, um, sorry, house slaves as aunt or uncle so-and-so um, and to use only a first name in that sense. Um, so for white Mormons to be referring to Jane as Aunt Jane um, both tied her to the community um, and, and may recognized her place in the community, but also kind of kept her at arm's length. She wasn't necessarily Sister Jane, she was Aunt Jane, um, sort of like a mammy figure. Um, and so it becomes a really problematic title, I think, um, when it's used for Jane um, in ways that are not true when it's used with regard to other white women in the religious community. Mm -hmm. And back to her first name, are you seeing that, are, are other scholars using that technique of referring to women in particular by first names only since last names are so tied to fathers, husbands, they change over time with women. It, it really depends, you know, um, I think it depends a lot on who you're writing about and their particular situation. I read a biography of Esther Wheelwright by a, a professor at Colorado State named Ann Little. Um, and Esther Wheelwright was raised as a Puritan. She was kidnapped by Native Americans. Um, and then she became, she ended up in, I think, Montreal and became a nun um, and the mother superior of her convent eventually. And so what Little's um, strategy is, is to use the name that was given uh, to uh, Esther Wheelwright um, during that particular period in her life to talk about her in that section of the book, um, which I thought was a really interesting strategy because those names changed actually quite a bit. Um, that wasn't, given the nature of my evidence for this book, um, it was a lot harder to do because a lot of the evidence that I had about Jane's life came from towards the very end of her life. So she was talking about uh, her childhood when she was unmarried, but she had at that point been married twice um, and she was using a different surname. So just in terms of sort of clarity for the reader, I wanted to use something that would be consistent across the entire narrative. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints preached the doctrine of the gathering, that all Mormons should physically live together in community. So Jane became part of the migration of Mormons to Illinois where the church was headquartered at the time. I was fascinated reading in your book about the journey she took from Connecticut, which was sometimes even by foot, 
um, especially because it was really not safe for a black person to travel basically anywhere in the United States at that time. Could you please talk a little bit about that and what that must have been like? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me to research and just sort of digging into all of these travel guides and so on for the 19th century US. Um, it was it was really fascinating. Um, so Jane and her family started out in Wilton, Connecticut, which is sort of southwestern Connecticut. Um, and they joined, uh, when they joined the church, they became a part of an interracial group. There were white members as well as black members. And eventually the entire group decided that they were going to move to Illinois. So Jane's family sold their property um, and they joined this group of, of white and black people. Um, and they went, they would have gone from Wilton, Connecticut, which is a tiny little town, um, to Norwalk, um, which is on the coast. And they would have taken a boat from there um, through the Long Island Sound to New York City. From New York City, they would have gotten onto a steamer and headed up the Hudson River um, to Albany. They took the boat up to Albany. Um, from there, they would have taken a train to Schenectady. There were 17 locks between Albany and Schenectady. And so they wanted to go on the Erie Canal, um, but it added basically an entire day's worth of travel um, to get only a few miles um, between Albany and Schenectady on the uh, canal because of the change in elevation. So probably they got on the canal boat in Schenectady and then headed to Buffalo, which took several days. Um, but Buffalo was the terminus of the canal on um, Lake Erie. And at Lake Erie, they were planning to get onto um, a, a steamship again um, and go from there uh, further west um, and then into the canal system in Ohio. Um, Jane, in her autobiography, said that they um, demanded payment at the beginning of this trip rather than at the end. They were expecting to pay in Columbus, but they weren't allowed to do that, and so they had to walk. Now, that statement, on the face of it, is rather confusing because at this point you expect, well, they must have had the money for their passage. Um, it wasn't like they were planning to earn it on the boat. Um, and so whether it was demanded at the beginning or at the end shouldn't have made any difference. So I think really what happened was something slightly different and it was clearly based on race because it was only the black members of the group who were not allowed to continue. Um, Jane gave her trunk to the missionary that was leading the group to take, so he would take the rest of that their luggage to Nauvoo, Illinois, in western Illinois, where the church was based. Um, and she and her family members, um, so she says they walked from Buffalo to Nauvoo. Um, why the, the ship's captain did not allow them to continue their journey with the rest of their group um, is an open question, but I think it may have had something to do with the fact that Ohio had a set of laws known as the Black Code, which required um, African Americans to post a bond when they entered the state um, 
that attested to their freedom um, and ensured that they would not become a burden on the state. This was not required for white folks. Um, and so that may have been the reason that the ship's captain didn't want to take them to Ohio. Um, other versions of Jane's story suggest that maybe um, this abandonment didn't happen at Buffalo, but rather it happened um, someplace in Ohio. Jane says in another account that she was left at a place called Eckland, Ohio, which doesn't actually exist. I think she may have meant Akron, Ohio. Um, and the missionary himself was actually brought up on charges of unchristian-like conduct for leaving the black members of his group um, in Cleveland. Regardless, we know that the black members of the group, um, including Jane and her family, um, were left somewhere hundreds of miles away from Nauvoo and they, they walked from Nauvoo, all the, or sorry, from wherever they were left, all the way to Western Illinois, the banks of the Mississippi River. Um, and so they were walking by day, they were sleeping in forests and abandoned buildings by night. Um, and as they walk, their shoes wear out. Um, they experience the, what Jane um, understands as the grace of God in so many different kinds of ways, through faith healings, um, through being uh, held up by a sheriff who then decides to let them go even though they can't produce their free papers. Um, various other kinds of incidents like that. Um, but they start to look more and more, I think, like runaway slaves. And that's an image that Jane really tries to distance herself from in a lot of ways. Um, so she tries to make sure that her audience always knows that she was never enslaved. Um, but I think the, the sort of increasing shabbiness of their clothing and their equipment um, makes her feel more and more nervous for a lot of different reasons over the course of that journey. But but they didn't ever, outside of the sheriff, you know, approaching them, but then ultimately letting them go. There weren't any other recordings of of run-ins such as that. Not that Jane ever talked about. Um, so we don't have any evidence of it. Although I have to think that at various points they may have run into all sorts of hostility. Um, there are, I mean, when they're in Ohio, interestingly, they might have attracted attention of abolitionists and folks active on the Underground Railroad, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, mm. But abolitionists, would have been actually maybe fairly disappointed to find out that this group of black people traveling on their own were not escaped slaves, um, but in fact were Latter-day Saints, um, because abolitionists actually tended to think of Mormonism as a sort of tyrannical religion and, and something to be resisted. So to see African-American people actually being attracted to it and moving towards that, um, having that as their goal, would have been sort of disorienting, I think. That's so interesting. It makes me think of even today as we look at people from all over and say like, oh, how, how can you believe what I think you're believing or how can you follow this? Doesn't that squash your liberties? 
Right. Well, and I think that it goes back to that question that you asked at the beginning about, you know, Jane espoused a fairly conservative religious belief. It was in some ways radical for its time, but mm. she, she fits on the sort of conservative end of things. She's not working for liberation in the ways that we tend to think of it for the 19th century. Um, and so, so she sort of doesn't fit our paradigm for what you're supposed to be like as a black woman in the 19th century. In chapter three of your book, Switching Gears here, you introduce the topic of polygamy. As early as the 1840s, you write, the national media was talking about how Mormonism encouraged men to have multiple wives. Jane herself wrote in her autobiography about this topic. She um, mentioned that she'd had conversations with other women in the church about it. You wrote that for Jane, this concept, quote, may have resonated differently than it did for the white women. Can you talk about society's views of sexuality and marriage for white people versus for black people? Sure. Um, that section was really well informed, I think, um, by the work of a professor named Tara Hunter, who wrote a book called Bound in Wedlock about marriage uh, for slave and free African-Americans um, in the 19th century. And one of the points that she makes is that legal marriage was not necessarily widely available for Black people in the 19th century, um, in large part because uh, Black people were considered, in the South, they were considered property rather than uh, agents who could make choices about who they wanted to marry. And so, the decision to be married was something that if you are property, you can't really make that decision. That's a, a decision that a free person can make, but not an enslaved person. Um, the upshot of the less widely available um, status of marriage um, for African-Americans was that sometimes um, Black people ended up in marriage-like relationships, but if um, one or the other partner has to go work someplace else or is somehow otherwise sent away, um, that marriage sort of ends or is suspended. And um, oftentimes, um, the people involved in that relationship felt themselves free to um, start another marriage-like relationship in the absence of their previous partner. Um, but that partner might come back at some point in the future. And so people ended up being married or quasi-married um, to multiple people. And this happened for both men and for women. Um, so in that sense, um, I, my thought was that Jane might be more familiar with a wider range of marriage-like relationships um, than many of the white women in the LDS church at the time. Um, the other thing that was going on for Jane is that Black women were uh, stereotyped as hypersexualized, um, and so she had to work harder in some ways, I think, to um, establish herself as a pure, um, sexually modest uh, woman 
than white women whose sexual modesty was taken for granted by the society around them. It must have been difficult to sort of, for lack of a better phrase, sort of walk that line of, of, of supporting the religion that she has chosen, that if, if polygamy is allowed, that she's supportive of that or encouraged even, um, but then also being very aware of how society might turn on her <laughs> by her saying that that's okay. Yeah, I think that's that absolutely might... true. Um, she, she told this story of, of learning about polygamy um, in her autobiography, and she dictates her autobiography sometime between 1902 and 1908 when she died. Um, but the period that she's talking about is the early 1840s when she's living in Joseph Smith's home working as a domestic servant. And she's, she's talking about um, a conversation that she had with a couple, it, well, with two pairs of sisters. Um, so four white women, um, all of them relatively young women, so probably around Jane's age or so. Um, and they're talking and uh, one of them says to Jane, um, you know, what would you think if a man had more wives than one? And Jane says in her autobiography that she claps her, her hands and says, that would be all right. And there's an exclamation point. It, she seems to be very enthusiastic. So there's, there's some really complicated things, I think, going on in terms of sort of the story that she's telling, but also the timing and the audience that she's imagining when she's telling it. Um, partly, she's constructing herself as an insider, right? Um, she lived in Joseph Smith's home. She had access to these uh, topics that were secret uh, at the time. Um, Latter-day Saints didn't publicly announce that they were practicing polygamy until 1852, mm. when they had moved to Utah and were, they felt that they were far enough away from the center of power in the United States that nobody was gonna bother them. Um, and so they could say out loud that they were practicing polygamy and they would still be left alone. Um, so there are rumors running around in the 1840s, um, but nothing is really certain at this point. Um, so Jane sets herself up as somebody who has accepted a really difficult doctrine really early on. She sets herself up as somebody who is at the epicenter of Mormon doctrine, Mormon theology. Um, and she sets herself up as not actually a wife, but as somebody who is supporting Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy. And for Mormons, that was really important. Um, so she becomes a central figure, that kind of Forrest Gump figure again, um, in her telling in the early 20th century, um, when she's really kind of trying to sort of shore up her status in the church because she wants certain kinds of religious privileges that she hasn't yet been able to get. Um, and so she is um, an important figure in the early 20th century church because she knew Joseph Smith. And there are not very many people alive at that point who did know Joseph Smith. Um, and so being able to tell these stories about her ready acceptance of really complicated and difficult LDS doctrine um, at a time when 
her experience as an acquaintance of Joseph Smith um, really confers some status. That's really important, I think, for Jane. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing to think about. Let's let's move into that. I was really taken reading about how determined and relentless Jane was in her fight to be granted full status in this in the church. Some of these privileges you mentioned that she didn't have before. Her efforts only seemed to increase as well as she got the older and older she got. Uh, can you talk about how the church saw her as an African American woman and what more she was demanding from them and why? Sure. Um, so LDS doctrine develops over time. And one of the things that sets the Latter-day Saints apart from other Protestant churches is what they set up a, as um, a, a theology of temples. Um, they start to believe that there are certain rituals that are necessary in order to be um, fully saved in the afterlife, in order to reach the highest degrees of exaltation, as they would put it. And they, they believe that you have to be baptized. Jane was baptized. Um, and then you need to be sealed to your family, um, particularly to your spouse, um, which means that you are um, bound together forever. You, you do a ritual in the temple, a sealing ritual, um, and then you will be together with that person to whom you are sealed for eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, and so marriages in the LDS temple are considered to be eternal marriages. Um, and that, uh, it, that becomes sort of part of what Latter-day Saints believe to be salvation, is to be in family relationships for eternity. So, um, so sealing is necessary. And then um, you also need to go through what's essentially kind of an initiation ritual called the endowment. Um, so you need to receive your endowment. Um, the endowment ritual is a ceremony in which Latter-day Saints um, receive sacred knowledge. They make sacred promises about how they will conduct themselves. Um, and they also reenact sacred history. Um, so it's, it's a, a sort of very involved ritual. Um, for listeners who are unfamiliar with Latter-day Saint theology, um, you may still have heard of what are often referred to as the Mormon underwear. Um, it's when that's, those are the garments um, that Latter-day Saints receive during the endowment ritual. And they're supposed to wear them every day. You get multiple sets. Um, you wear those every day as a reminder um, of who you are and whose you are. It, it reminds me you about your sacred identity. Um, and so, so Jane really wanted to participate in those rituals, the sealing and the endowment. Um, and she said that she had been offered the opportunity to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, um, when she lived in Nauvoo. Um, so in addition to sealing husbands and wives together, Latter-day Saints also seal children to their parents um, in adoption rituals, essentially. Um, so if you are born to a, a couple who has already been sealed in the temple, 
the assumption is that you are born into the covenant, so you don't need to be sealed to them. But if you are a child of parents who were sealed um, after you were born, um, or if you're a child who is adopted, um, then you also need to be sealed to that set of parents so that you can be with them in eternity. And in the 19th century, um, Latter-day Saints didn't necessarily follow those biological lines of uh, parenthood to decide who was going to be sealed to whom. What they were trying to do was to create this great network of humanity so that eventually the entire human family would be sealed to one another. And during the time that Jane was requesting to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, lots of white Latter-day Saints were requesting exactly the same thing. And they were all getting yeses. They were allowed to be sealed to him as a child. Jane was not allowed to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, even though she had the story to back up her request saying that Joseph told Emma Smith, his first wife, um, to offer to Jane that she could be adopted to them as a child. Um, and Jane didn't understand at the time, and so she said no, but she'd really like to change her mind now, please, and could she please do that? She made that request over and over and over again. Um, and the leadership of the church always said no, because I think they really couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of giving Joseph Smith a black daughter in eternity. They also always told her that she could not receive her endowment um, because they did not see those rituals as available to black Latter-day Saints. Um, the priesthood in the LDS church at the time um, was not available to uh, black men. Um, we know that some black men had been ordained to the priesthood during Joseph Smith's lifetime, but when Brigham Young be became president of the church, um, that ended pretty quickly. And so um, priesthood is connected to the ability to um, perform these rituals in the temple. Um, so women can't hold the priesthood, but they enjoy the blessings of the priesthood um, in the ritual of the endowment and in uh, sealing ceremonies. So Jane was not allowed to enjoy those blessings of the priesthood um, because she was black. She never really gave up on that, um, particularly on the request to be sealed to Joseph Smith. She just kept pestering leaders of the church asking them over and over again um, to grant this request that she be sealed to Joseph Smith. And finally, they, they kind of got fed up with her, I think. Um, and they created a ceremony for her to be sealed to Joseph Smith. But instead of sealing her as a child, they sealed her as a servant to Joseph Smith and his family for eternity. She was not allowed to go into the temple, into the sealing room where that uh, ritual was performed, even though she was alive. Um, it was performed in May of 1894, so 125 years ago. Um, and so a proxy stood there for her. There was a proxy for Joseph Smith, um, and the officiant declared at the end of the ceremony that she was going to be a servant to Joseph Smith and his family for eternity. 
the minutes of uh, LDS church leaders' meetings afterwards indicate that she wasn't particularly satisfied with that. Um, she applied again for sealing blessings, um, but of course was denied, they say. Um, and we also know that the leadership of the church was not particularly satisfied with the ceremony because they had created it just for her. But I think they found that it was not really a satisfying way of structuring relationships in eternity because they never performed it for anyone ever again, uh, as far as we know. Um, so so that, that ceremony, we have this sort of really interesting ritual innovation created to sustain a system that is at its base racist. Um, and it's, it's fascinating and heartbreaking all at once. Wow, that's incredible that uh, the layers of that and that it was performed just that once. Wow. So in 1978, the LDS Church uh, received a revelation extending the priesthood to all worthy male members, which meant essentially men of African descent. And the corollary was that the temple rituals were opened up to both black men and black women. So somebody performed all of the ceremonies that Jane had requested for her by proxy um, in, I think, 1979, shortly after that revelation was received. So those rituals have been done. And there's a, a wonderful sort of flexibility in LDS rituals in that they can be performed at any time, right? You don't have to be alive anymore for them still mm. to be effective. So they have been done, and I think the LDS Church is wrestling with that racial history. It's a really interesting moment, and Jane provides us a really interesting lens for looking at that history um, in the LDS Church. That was Kristen Thiel with The Shira Solution. You just heard part one of the interview with author Quincy D. Newell. Her latest book, entitled Our Sister in the Gospel, the Life of Jane Manning James is published by Oxford University Press. Part two of the interview will air on the July episode. This month's question is about religion. If you were raised with a religious tradition, do you feel it reflects your values or are you at odds with some of its core messages? Tell us what you think at tpol at kboo.org or go to kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, episode 28, to log in and leave a comment. Rochelle Schmidt is back this month with another conversation about toxic masculinity with students who work in media. In today's segment, Rochelle and her colleagues explore what toxic masculinity looks like to college students in everyday situations. Here's Rochelle. Let's have everyone introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Kai Pacifico Eng. I uh, am the marketing director at PSU TV. Hello, my name is Brittany Nicole Viella. I am a director, gaffer, and filmmaker with the PSU TV program. My name is Brad Weber. Uh, I'm a producer at PSU TV. I produce a show called Welcome to Stubtown. And I am Nolan Gold. I am a producer at PSU TV. I produce Live Friday. Thank you guys for joining me today. We previously, not with the same exact group, but we had had discussions kind of off air uh, at times about toxic masculinity and what that means. And one thing I know we had mentioned that we wish we had had time for and I wanted to follow up and chat more about is how you view toxic masculinity as someone in media and what you see when looking at mass media, how it's represented from your perspective. 
being a woman of color, you know, I identify as Mexican-American, so there's it's definitely been a little troubling <laughs> um, having to get into the media force. I feel that there's been a lot of times where I've had to represent my more myself a bit more harsher than I intend to be just to be able to be taken seriously. And I feel like at times when I do assert any authority, especially within media, you know, sometimes negative things said about me where, you know, I'm called pretty nasty terms and I've come to terms with it. You know, I've grown really thick skin, but it's not anything that I feel like is acceptable. For me, that's where I've seen a lot in toxic masculinity within the media, but I've also unfortunately dealt with a lot worse. But any, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you all like take the floor on that too. I mean, when we think of like uh, toxic, toxic masculinity in the media, I mean, what comes to mind for everyone? The first thing that comes to mind to me would be like James Bond or something. Like yeah, right. sort of like a classic like film series that's sort of the main character is the archetype of toxic masculinity, and it's a film series that's been going on for 40 years and continues. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind yeah. of like that, that classic male stereotype of just, like, the womanizer, the guy, the, the smack talker who's sarcastic, but you like it because he's handsome. Yeah. And uh, I think that I think that encourages a lot of behavior, like, in the workplace, especially media, where you're encouraged to kind of follow these archetypes of characters and whatnot because you're always surrounded by them. I think that encourages a lot of often negative behavior that we don't necessarily process or think about because it's so normalized because we constantly experience it. Yeah. There's also something to do with like being like a student in media, I guess, like being like working. I mean, this is a student organization, right? Mm-hmm. You have students who are a lot more uh, quote unquote like comfortable with each other and so they will make jokes and even if everyone technically might be comfortable with things that are being said, like as a producer, you know, I still have to be like, "Hey, no. Like this is this is a professional mm-hmm. thing. Like we're working here. Like yeah. that's not okay." Absolutely. Mhm kind of going off on like the whole James Bond thing too there's this like uh this like idea where you know any a woman in position like I always think of like you know the devil's wear Prada and how everyone always makes jokes about it's like oh my god like a woman in position is like super scary and everything and I've always felt that there's this like idea about that where it's like women in power are just like oh no my god this is terrifying and it's like no it's not <laughs> I, it's, it's a thing that happens I feel like there's also like kind of going what off Brad said too it's like we I feel like um, going into the you know the era of Time's Up and Me Too, more than anything now we should really hold people you know especially accountable behind the scenes on set mm-hmm. you know in any situation that we are nowadays to you know make sure that these toxic ideas aren't furthered or pursued anymore. So rather like you know it's all fun and games on set and everything, but as soon as someone says something, it's like Ugh, we should cut that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When we're talking about toxic masculinity in the media, it wouldn't just be, like, in our entertainment or the art we watch, but also mm-hmm. uh, that we are all people who work in, like, some form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. It creates this system where it's, like, toxic masculinity exists in real life, therefore toxic masculinity exists in our entertainment, therefore it influences real life to cause more toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And it's this recursive process where it just kind of self-perpetuates. What you had touched on earlier, talking about the Me Too movement and those sort of things, I feel like the term toxic masculinity, if we were to talk about, you know, 20 years ago, the term didn't exist, but we all can point to examples of where it existed 20 years ago. Sure. We may not have yeah. had the label, but the thing itself existed. Yeah. Um, and knowing growing up with this term now um, as a younger generation, if you will, uh, how do you think it's influencing your interactions with older generations? Older men, especially. <laughs> whatever, like you go to family visits or whatever, something, right? And like, there will be an expectation of what it means to be masculine, I guess, Mm -hmm. like within a family or something like that. And, uh, (laughs) you know, like you might not always reach those those expectations. 
it can be difficult to say like this is my representation of masculinity I make it what mm-hmm. I want it to be mm-hmm. right I feel like that extends to I guess just identity in general when you're when you're when you're tackling that that topic of I guess this polarization between how how things are now how your experience is and then how things were back then whatever that back then is because you know you can go up to a family reunion and approach your grandpa and talk about, you know, sexuality, gender, and politics, and people will say stuff, and you're like, wow, that is super sexist and super <laughs> racist, <laughs> and that is just your reality. <laughs> I've had a lot of awkward conversations and weird moments with people where it's weird how anytime I invoke any masculinity or any, like, you know... I'm not really, like, the quote-unquote typical, like, femme identity. I quite honestly, you know, I grew up very, like, with my older brother, very close with him. He taught me, you know, video games, playing in the dirt, not really caring. Meanwhile, then, like, at night, I'd play with Barbies. Like, you know, I was very versatile. You know, I knew how to play Smash Bros. while also, like, dress my Barbie up. But with that being said, I feel like this notion is also very... It's, it's so good to have this word now to just really help people kind of combat against it because Mm -hmm. I feel like personally growing up I didn't really have anything to combat against because I didn't even know what I was fighting against I just Mm -hmm. knew that I was trying to establish my identity that was Rochelle Schmidt this was the first part of a conversation with college students about toxic masculinity the second part will air in the July episode of the politics of living in this month's edition of let's stop for a minute M.L. Laurie further explores the idea of stable happiness and being responsible to ourselves first. Here's Let's Stop for a Minute with M.L. Laurie. So let's stop for a minute. Let's think about this. In my last segment, we talked about the three cultural influences that we all encounter from birth that have played a big part in the development of our software programs or our learned ways of thinking. These influences have resulted in the creation of our views of the world and others. These cultural influences are our family, country, and male-female cultural messages. So I left you with the questions, what are the main cultural messages that interfere with our having a positive sense of self or high self-esteem, and how do these cultural messages interfere with our happiness? So there are actually two main ways of thinking or learned software programs that interfere the most with our happiness. They are the false cultural message, or myth as I call it, that a stable happiness can be found from things outside of ourselves and the belief that we are alone in our human experiences. So let's stop for a minute and think first about the main software program that interferes most with our happiness. The cultural message that stable happiness can be found from people and things outside of ourselves is actually the main way of thinking that interferes the most with our attempts to find a stable happiness. We've talked about this in other segments where I presented that this is a false cultural myth that's not only prominent in our culture, but also in most cultures in the world. Most people believe the way to find happiness is through accumulating things and people and accomplishments. This is what we've been taught from birth. Since these are things outside of ourselves and things we can't control, then they are subject to change and will change and will change whether we want them to or not because we have no control or say about them. Things we buy fall apart. People in our lives leave for different reasons, by choice or not choice, and whatever we have accomplished can lose its luster with time. So as long as we look 
to things outside of ourselves for our happiness, our happiness will be dependent upon these things. And because of this, we'll go up and down based on our experience with them. We will also be on a constant course to get more things or more people or more accomplishments in our attempts to find happiness. But what does this have to do with our sense of self or self-esteem? Well, there's sort of a relationship with looking outside of ourselves for happiness and the idea that things outside of ourselves are responsible for how we think or feel or what we choose to do. Say, if we are looking to someone for our happiness and they don't do or think or feel the way we want, then we tend to hold them responsible for how we feel or think. Think about it. How many times have we just said we feel or think something because of what someone else did? We've talked before about how it isn't possible to control things outside of ourselves. For example, how many times have we tried to get someone in our life to do something and weren't successful? A lot of times we don't even realize we are doing this. We just wanted someone to think or feel or do something or wanted a situation to be a certain way. We've all had the experience of not being able to get someone to think or feel the way we wanted. Think about the times we tried to get our parents or kids or friends or partners to think or feel or do something we wanted and they didn't. This is because they are in control, not us. We talked before about how the only way to control someone else is to take physical control of them. But even then, we can't control how they think or feel. So let's stop for a minute and think about this. So when we try to control someone or something outside of ourselves and things don't go like we want, then we feel frustrated. A sense of helplessness often results. This frustration is actually coming from feeling helpless to get what we want. Sometimes we keep trying to make things happen the way we want. And if they don't, we just continue to increase our frustration. And whether we realize it or not, our sense of helplessness. In reality, the whole idea of being able to control and thereby get a situation or someone to be as we like is totally impossible. If we do get the results we want, this is only because those involved have chosen to go along with it. We can only control what we think or feel or say or do. And even sometimes that seems hard. This unrealistic thinking can also feed a sense of being incapable if we hold on to the whole idea that we actually can control situations or others and thereby we're responsible for the results. If we are looking to someone or something for happiness, can't control it or them, and then feel upset or unhappy because we weren't successful, This is how our self-esteem gets compromised. In reality, we are trying to do something that is impossible and will always result in a sense of helplessness. This is very unfair to ourselves, to take responsibility for something that we cannot control and is impossible to achieve and actually has no basis in reality. This is being unkind to ourselves. This outward-looking type of thinking also often produces a kind of sense that we can feel better about ourselves by blaming someone or something outside of ourselves for how we think and feel, and even for our lack of success in bringing about outcomes with people and situations. Can we see how if we think we are responsible for others that we can turn this around and make them responsible for us? This, again, is going to create this sense of helplessness because if someone or something outside of ourselves is in control, then we are, again, helpless. And maybe even feel hopeless at times because we tell ourselves we don't have any control. We are at the mercy of someone or something that is in control of us and responsible for us. 
take blaming another race for how we feel and the situations in our life. It is not reality that an entire group or people even think or feel the same way, never mind that they are in control of how we feel or think. All of this is totally illogical and has no basis in reality. If we can't control others or things outside of ourselves, then it is also true that they cannot control us. And you can only be responsible for something you can control. So guess what? This means we are actually totally responsible for how we think, feel, and what we choose to do. Actually, it is this very thing, realizing that we were responsible for ourselves and no one else, and thereby understanding our own power to control and choose how we think or feel, or what we choose to do, that gives us our own sense of self-power and gives us confidence and increases our self-esteem. This idea that things or others are responsible for how we think or feel or what we do has no basis in reality because no one is responsible for something they cannot control. If we could control others, there are many of us like me or many people in the world that would already have taken control and made everybody be happy or, or maybe everyone be unhappy or there wouldn't be any kind of struggle to, with different ideologies because somebody would have come in and already taken control. It's not possible. So let's say someone calls you a bad name. Do you have a choice as to how to respond? Well, yes, you do. We can mindlessly go off with our learned pattern of thinking and just respond without thinking. Or we can stop, take a breath, and decide how we want to think or how we want to respond to someone. You could feel angry, you could feel happy, you can pay them no attention, or you can just simply smile and think, well, that is you, that comes from you, that's your issue. I'm not giving you my power, so okay. Is there something I can do to help you? There are numberless ways that we can choose to respond. So let's stop for a minute and think about this. What is it that causes people to blame things and others for what they think and feel? This is mostly based in this false cultural myth that happiness can be found from things outside of ourselves. This is a very powerful cultural message that we all get. The message is everywhere. For example, in TV commercials, I often use the one where the jingle is ultra-bright toothpaste gives your mouth sex appeal. So why do we need sex appeal? Well, to attract a partner, date, or in other words, to attract another person. After all, we all know that we can't be happy unless we have a partner, a boyfriend, or girlfriend, right? Wrong. So the blaming of things or others for how we think or feel or what we do is like a secondary way of thinking that comes from this myth. If we think people outside of ourselves can make us happy and they don't, then it must be their fault, right? Or maybe we blame ourselves. This also is not based in reality because what someone thinks or feels about us comes from their software programs or their learned ways of thinking. It's important to remember that if we are what someone thinks or feels we are, then everyone would see, think, or feel the same way about us. We all know that different people think differently about others and situations. It all comes down to a choice. Do you want to continue to not take responsibility for what you think and feel based on the false belief that things outside of ourselves are responsible for us, which actually creates a sense of helplessness or low self-esteem? Or do you want to take the true, sometimes scary path that is based in reality, that only we can control how we think, feel, or what we do, and the same goes for others. This is why it is so important to become aware of our software programs or learn ways of thinking. If we aren't aware of our patterns of thinking, then how can we even be aware that we are making a choice? Think about it. This reality-based thinking actually helps us take back our own personal power and increases our self-esteem. 
It is very important to remember that we are not responsible for someone or something if we can't control them or the situation. If we do choose to take this responsibility, we're doing a disservice to ourselves because we are telling ourselves something that has no basis in reality. It's important to be kind to ourselves as we learn about these faulty ways or thinking that we have because most of them are based in thinking we have been taught from birth. The really, really good news is that as we become aware, we can choose our own thinking and thereby increase our happiness. So let's stop for a minute and think about all of this. Think about it. Do we feel happy when we feel bad about ourselves? Do we feel happy when we feel that we can't control things in our lives and thereby feel helpless? How are we usually feeling when we are experiencing our sense of happiness? As we start to pay attention, we will find that we really do feel most happy when we are feeling good about ourselves. A stable sense of happiness therefore comes from an inner path where we learn to live in the reality that we have a strong sense of personal power by understanding we are in control of how we think, feel, and what we do, and that we do not have to give our power to others, no matter what they say or do to us. And we live in the reality that we are not responsible for what others think or feel or do they are. So let's just stop for a minute and think about all of this. What about this other main software program or learned way of thinking that interferes with our happiness? This belief that we are alone in our human condition. How does this thinking affect our self-esteem and happiness? Think about it. Let's stop for a minute. Let's think about it. I'm M.L. Laurie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks to our guests and our contributors, Brittany Viella, Brad Weber, Nolan Gold, Ka Pacifico Eng, Quincy D. Newell, Rochelle Schmid, M.L. Laurie, and Kristen Thiel. Also, thanks to our web manager and creator, Denise Kowalczyk. Visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 28, to find links about today's topics and guests. All feedback, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to tpol at kboo.org. And if you'd like to be a guest or a contributor on The Politics of Living, please email us at tpol at kboo.org. Thanks for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Vicki Mazzone.